Amen. We want to continue in that worship. Uh, Taking your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 15. As you turn there with me, um, I'm so thankful. I say this often about the, the ministry of music in the life of God's people. Um, Martin Luther used to say that second only to the Word of God were those songs of the church. That's a significant statement in the life of God's people. And the song we just sang had two amazing and and possibly subtle expressions. One was um, Trinitarianism. Glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And the other one was uh, maybe a little more subtle, the Lord is my salvation, the Lord is my salvation, the Lord is my salvation. And then we ended with, the Lord is our salvation. And that is that we are the covenant people of God, not covenant individuals. And so God has this peculiar people, not a peculiar person. I am a peculiar person, but we are the peculiar people of God. And so that song ministers to us in those two ways. Looking in our Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 15, I invite you to listen as I read from 22 through the end of the chapter, Exodus 16, 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went in the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Then they came to Marah. They could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log. He threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. There he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the disease on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees And they encamped there by the water. You can be seated and children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church this morning. Which I I would just say as I think about Children's Church, um, if you know my daughter Kate, uh, uh, she's working in Children's Church this morning. And if I told Kate, um, I can get you anything that you wish. Or I can say in front of the whole church that today is your birthday. What would you rather I do? Kate would say, just let them know it's my birthday. Um, So today is Kate's 14th birthday. She's working, so it's only half of the gift because she's not in the room. But uh, you can wish her happy birthday later. She's helping out in children's church this morning as my wife is leading in there. So here we are in Exodus chapter 15. And I want you to look very closely because it's, It's likely that we missed something at the end of verse 21. Look down at the end of verse 21. After the period and the exclamation point, there is something very, very interesting after verse 21 in Exodus 15. 
That is, that the book of Exodus didn't end. It doesn't say Leviticus right there. It continues. I, I, I think it would be helpful for us to simply identify that if we were to divide the book of Exodus as plainly as possible, we would say the first 15 chapters are a revelation of God delivering his people from Egypt. And the rest of the book is a revelation of how God gets Egypt out of his people. That's really what happens from here on. He's going to give them instruction. He's going to test their faith. And there's going to be this exercise in sanctification, in being peculiar people. So the question is, as we go through these trials and tests with the Israelites, is to ask ourselves, who's leading Israel? Who is leading Israel? Well, God is. And then, what is God like? What does he do? What do we expect to see revealed about God? That's the question for us as the students of Exodus. What is God like? What is relationship with God historically? So the title I've given to this sermon is As Often As You Eat and Drink. On the way out of the border of Egypt, they are wandering into the Sinai Peninsula, and there are four crises that they face. There's four. The first one we're going to study today, it's that they don't have anything to drink. They're in the desert and they're thirsty. The second one is they don't have anything to eat. It is a barren land. There really is very limited resources. And then again, they're going to come to a situation where there's nothing to drink. And then they're going to meet this nomadic people uh, that they have conflict with. So there are these four crises. Not enough to drink, not enough to eat, not enough to drink, and a conflict with people. And as they go through that conflict, we are reminded about the Lord giving them drink and food. It becomes clear to us and it becomes clear to them that it is only by the grace of God that they have been delivered from Egypt and it is still going to be by the grace of God that they will arrive at their final destination. That was a point that was important to me last week, that we see that grace has not just brought us safe thus far, but grace will lead us surely home. Now, that's an important thing for you to hold on to, because today I'm going to talk a little bit about God starting to give law to his people. And I, I don't want you to allow in your mind to have a necessity to create an either-or. Either God interacts with his people in law or in grace. That would be a, a false presumption that would lead you to a misunderstanding of the book of Exodus. In fact, the gospel. Jesus had to clarify this when he comes and preaches the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to talk more about that later. He is making clear to his people Israel that his grace has delivered them from bondage and his grace is leading them home. After this great victory at the Red Sea, they experience this first significant test. The Israelites don't pass it easily. The circumstances, it's hard for us 
to put ourselves really in those three days. It is hard. And I think if we try and, and pray, Lord, help us to see the first audience of this revelation might make us a little more patient with their grumbling. And it might make us apply this truth to our lives a little more plainly. I don't know if we can understand what it's like to go through this trial, walking three days in the desert with no water. And you say, well, I think I, think I could go three days. Probably none of us have, so we're not sure we could go three days. But think about the animals that are dying on the way. Think about the children that are weeping before bedtime. Just want something to drink. The infants that are crying. The nursing mothers. Think about the lack of water for three days. This is a real test of God. Or by God for his people. So, we can learn. Now, my points today are going to sound a little bit like a wilderness survival lesson. They, they really are. Like the first point. Thirst is worse for us when we don't know where we are. <laughs> it's not, it sounds like we're learning some like camping instruction. When you're out in the great northwest of the United States, your thirst is going to seem worse when you're afraid you'll never find water. Okay. So it's going to sound a little bit like that. And, and in some ways it is meant to be this practical statement about physical thirst because my prayer is that when we're done, I'm going to talk to you about the way God meets our need for water on a regular basis or for food on a regular basis, spiritually. Okay, so let me pray. And then I want to learn some lessons about their thirst and their experience and what God does for his people when they're vulnerable to fearing death. What God does for his people when they become susceptible to the fear of dying. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to please bless the preaching of your word. We're thankful for the promise that its declaration will never return void. That your word is powerful and sharp and it will bear fruit where it is proclaimed. And so Lord, as it is Authority, I pray that foremost your word would be taught and your word would be heard and that your word would shape us according to your will. I pray, Father, not only for uh, ourselves in this setting, uh, but Lord, today would you bless especially uh, Leroy Jonas at Village Church and as he has been exposed to the word this week, causing him by your spirit a burden to declare that word to the Christian community at Village Church. And so Lord, we pray for him and for the ongoing work of discipleship that is uh, essential in all of our congregations. So we pray that way, not selfishly, but we pray in petition and supplication for other congregations like ours who are dependent and we need to live by this word. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so in verse 22 and 23, we see the first point. I'll give you three today. 
Uh, if you don't have a handout and you'd like to grab one, there are three racks on wheels in the back, and there's a handout. You can feel free to walk back and grab one if you don't have one yet. I won't be distracted by that, as long as you take your shoes off so you walk silently. Look with me. Look with me at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, its name is Marah. Three days they walk. They go from the bank of the Red Sea. They turn and walk east into the Sinai Peninsula, and they arrive in the area of Shur, a vast, rugged wilderness. Shur is a largely waterless region. The Bible tells us in Genesis 16:7 that this is the place where Hagar went to escape from uh, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah. This is the place where Hagar went to escape from Sarah. And the Bible tells us the angel of the Lord finds Hagar sitting by water. In other words, when she went into the region of Shur to escape the persecution and the ridicule, she there found one source of water and stopped there. She didn't wander around assuming there's going to be more water. There wasn't more water. This is a barren place. It was outside of Egypt. It was outside of the border, the fortification, the observation of Egypt. In other words, this represents freedom from slavery. One of the requests that Israel had made to Egypt is let us go into the wilderness. Here they are in the wilderness. The Bible tells us they travel for three days without finding water. From our standpoint, we should sympathize with the concern for them not having water. It is really easy for us to kind of wag our finger in the face of grumbling Israelites in the desert or doubting Thomas in the upper room or faithless Peter sinking and not walking on the water. And I, and I think we could do better than that. I think we could be a little more sympathetic and go, oh, yes, boy, that is an object lesson about moments in my own life. And here's one where they are afraid. That's the problem. They're afraid. It is possible that they have already seen death in these three days. It's possible. I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't reveal that. But could an animal, could every animal at every age and every condition survive? Could every person in every condition and every age survive three days in desert conditions without water? They're afraid. They had probably already consumed whatever water they were carrying with them. And then they arrive at a source of water, but the water is bitter. I, I can't tell you exactly what that means. Does that mean the water is that sort of water that if you drink it, it only makes you sick and therefore more dehydrated? I don't know. The water, by their description, is not potable. It's not fit for their consumption. So they turn to Moses and say, what are we going to drink? That is not outrageous or unfair question. But the question for us in the text from a part of the Pentateuch 
that is revealing God is this. Who is leading them and what is he like? When is God leading and where is God leading? Well, let me, let me point out a couple of points of irony. The first one is this. They come to water and find that it cannot be consumed by humans or it seems animals. Think back with me to the first plague in Egypt, in Exodus 7. What was it? Making the Nile River undrinkable, unusable. They come to the Exodus where they're hemmed in by the sea. And what was their problem? There's too much water. There's an army, and there's too much water. And now they're at Mara, and there is no drinking water. They didn't know where they were. And so not only are they thirsty where they are, they don't know if there's water another three days that way, or another three days that way, or another three days that way. And they become overrun with anxiety, concern. We are alive right now, but where's the next source of water? Their thirst is magnified by the fact that they are in a place that is unfamiliar. Imagine if they were in Egypt. They could maybe have gone out for three days and done work in the fields, making bricks without straw. And maybe they're in a particular location, gathering straw, where they are struggling to find adequate water. But they say, oh, it's okay. I am very thirsty right now, but I know there's water right over there. They, they don't have that. They don't have that assurance now. I am thirsty right now, and I have no idea that there's water anywhere here. So the problem becomes, in this moment, the former experience of slavery was more comfortable to them than the uncertainty of walking by faith. That, that means something for us. There are so many occurrences in our life where former familiarity with sin becomes more comfortable than the odd, uncomfortable, foreign walking by faith. Because we are afraid. I don't know if I can walk that way and be sure that I won't perish. And they look back, perhaps fondly, on slavery. Because walking by faith is something totally new and uncomfortable for them. And they say, what are we going to drink? So there is this sense, as I finish this first point, about how feeling lost can make thirst worse. Thirst worse. There is this point where I want to talk to you as pilgrims, sojourners, walking through this wilderness that is our life in the curse. The Bible tells us that on the night in which our shepherd was betrayed, he was in an upper room and he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. 
And in celebrating the Passover, he institutes for the church Christian communion. And he tells his disciples, followers of Christ, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim to each other, you're not lost. You proclaim his death has ransomed you, and he is coming to gather you. Every time you drink of what he's given you to drink, you say to your soul and the soul of the people that you worship with, we're not lost. We are where he has put us by the completed work of Christ, and he's coming again to gather us to himself. We're not lost. And so, you'll have very real moments of thirst and fear. And one of the things our shepherd, Jesus Christ, gives us is assurance through communion. You are not lost. I am leading and providing. Not only for them and for us, does the fact that they didn't know where they were, this is unfamiliar territory, they've never walked this path, but that making their thirst worse also, one of the things that discomfort, like thirst can do, is cause us to grumble or to cry. So secondly, when we are thirsty, we can be provoked to grumble or to cry. Um, is it just me? Or is water never more essential to life than the five minutes after bedtime? There has never been a greater expression of our dependence on water than a small child right after they're supposed to be in bed. <laughs> and they, they, they seem to learn quickly that as parents, we're hesitant to deny them the essentials for living, even though they're disobeying our instruction to go to sleep. They're playing on our basic parental decencies. I just need water. Water. No. Save the water for tomorrow. Thirst can lead to grumbling or crying. Look at verse 24, please. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord, what shall we drink? That's not an unreasonable question. The sin is rather in the attitude of the question. The people grumbled. Moses pleads. Moses is God's human representative at this moment, and so they target their concern or criticism, their grumbling, at Moses. Now, as the people turn and look at Moses and go, what's hovering in the sky just to the east? The presence of God. The presence of God. The, the light, the fire, or the, the cloud and the fire. And it seems like maybe they're either unsure of God's leading or they're perhaps hesitant to turn and shake their fists 
at the pillar. And so they turn to the messenger who represents the pillar and say, The people didn't have what they expected. That's a big problem for us. Um, if you've, if you've uh, run with me very long, you know that one of the things I have to remind my soul of is the number one cause for disappointment is overinflated expectations. expectations. The number one concern, like the thing that deflates us the most, is when we have set unrealistic expectation. And it's possible that's the sort of thing that is really vexing the Israelites. Like, hey, we thought we were going to be delivered from slavery. We didn't know there would be any more problems after this. No more complications. No more struggles. No more having to walk by faith. And so they are frustrated. They feel like they have not received what they rightly expected. Ever since the Garden of Eden, this has been a problem. This is a serious avenue for sin's allure in our life. I have not received what I should have received, so I will. It's exactly what James says about sin. Don't you sin because you want what you don't have, so you go out and try on your own means to get it by sinful devices? Exactly what James says. So the people grumble to Moses, and then Moses cries to the Lord. Now, it's not as though the people had never cried to the Lord. Back in Exodus chapter 2, the Bible says they cried out to God in prayer, and God arrives through his messenger Moses and says, God has heard your cries, and he is here to show his mercy to you. They knew that they could cry out to him, and he was a living and true God who would respond in kind. But they don't do that here. They choose not to cry out. Instead, they grumble, and then Moses cries out. In verse 25, let me just mention this quickly. There is a miracle described here in one half of a verse. It's just this passing statement. Like, yeah, the water's not any good. Uh, throw a piece of wood in, and then the water's great. And that's all that's said about the miracle. The supernatural demonstration of God's presence, his provision to them, is not different from the kind of demonstration earlier that Moses had showed to the elders. Remember, he changed water with his staff. He changed the water of the Nile with his staff. So they've seen this before. When when Moses and Aaron arrive at the elders, they're like, hey, God sent me here to the leaders of the people to convince the people that God's going to do what he's promised in his covenant to Abraham to do. And to show you a sign of that, I'm going to turn a little bit of water here into blood and then turn it back. And then we're going to go do that on a big scale in front of Pharaoh and all his magicians. And that's what we're still dealing with in Exodus 15. God tells Moses what to do. Moses does it. And God's grace is demonstrated. I want you to note the difference, please, between grumbling and crying. Uh, as, as a child of God, I want you to know the appropriate way to cry out to God and the inappropriate way that we often groan or grumble to God. Um, 
if I could just suggest that there is a picture. You can see it. There's a word picture of grumbling. I did it earlier. When I said, they don't look at the pillar and say, come on, pillar. Instead, they look at Moses and they do what? You see his hands? That's a good picture of grumbling. This is a good picture of crying. For a child to plead for the provision that only their heavenly father can give is good. It's good. God is glorified in us when we find the substance of our satisfaction in him. So we cry out. When we pray for our friends who are ill, when, when Jay prays this morning for Retha, we've been praying for Steve. We've been praying for Pete. We're praying today for Les Weco. Les here? Les not here? Les not here. Okay. Les Weco, his age is catching up with him about 50 years after mine has, but it is. And so we pray for each other. And when we pray for each other, we say, Lord, it is good for us to cry out to you. We can't do anything to aid in the recovery of Retha's hip. And so we pray to you. We can't make this, this undrinkable water usable. So Moses cries to God. I, I want you to know the difference. It is good, child, to cry out to your father. It is sin to close your fist and shake them in the face of the Almighty as though he has somehow made a mistake. Remember with me the first miracle of Jesus? Remember the first earthly miracle of Jesus' life? It is the wedding feast, right? It's that he turned the water into wine. He took what they didn't want to drink at the wedding and made it really enjoyable to drink. When his mom came to him, Mary, and she's like, oh, hey, 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 there's a problem. Could you look into it? What did he say? He said, it has not been my purpose here to make a cup of drink for this bride and her guests. Not for this bride and her guests. Then, of course, Jesus turns the water into wine, and the people are astonished. They're like, this is the best. You served the second best, and now you're serving the best. Now, go with me again to the life of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His disciples. He's going to pray with them. Watch tonight because our bodies are really susceptible to failing tonight. So let's watch and pray. And he takes Peter, James, and John, and they kind of get separated with Jesus from the rest. And it's late at night, and they just had the meal. They just ate. And they're in the dark garden. And Peter, James, and John are there, and then. Jesus goes, what the Bible says, a stone's throw away. He goes a stone's throw away. And there he weeps and perspires blood from his forehead. And he cries out to the Father. 
if there's any way that this cup, this bitter, undrinkable cup of your wrath could pass from me, then Lord, make it so. But if not, your will be done. And then he goes to the cross and not only drinks from the cup of God's wrath, but says he drinks all of it and it is finished. And when Jesus at the cross consumes all of the bitter drink, we enjoy the sweet fellowship of communion and sharing cup with him. At the cross, Christ performs the miracle of changing the bitter drink into sweet wine fit for the wedding feast of the Lamb. So I understand that when we think we're lost, our little bit of thirst becomes a real problem. I also understand that sometimes being thirsty, which we get in this life, can tempt us to grumble. But when we look at what has been accomplished by turning the bitter into sweet on our behalf, we look at the cross and we don't grumble. We cry out. We pray. Thirdly, thirst, it seems from this text, is sometimes providentially satisfied by a log and a law. So, if you're on your wilderness adventure and I'm your wilderness instructor, I would say that if you get out into the wilderness and you find no source of water, rest assured, sometimes a log will solve the problem and sometimes the law of God will. Okay, So that's, that's where this whole wilderness instruction really breaks down because you're in real trouble if that's the advice for your wilderness journey. However, spiritually, Exodus 15, verse 25, the second half of the verse says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Here we have God providing for his people in their time of need by giving them law to live by. The law or statute here, this test, is that they learn that it's not enough for the people of God to sing and to rejoice. They had to learn to obey. We read this morning from Micah 6, and we read that we are not sinless. We are yet offending God. And would we sacrifice a thousand rams? No. We would obey. We would walk and live and interact the way he instructs us to. Freedom from Egypt did not mean lawless freedom for the children of God. So child of God, I would remind you that your freedom from the bondage of sin does not mean lawless behavior for God's people. That's what I'm going to say here in the next couple minutes. Freedom from service to Pharaoh meant freedom to serve God. Service to Pharaoh was tyranny. Service to God is true uh, liberty. 
God reveals to the children of Israel their ongoing dependence on him. And if you look at verse 26, there are four action words. Four action words. This is important to me. Based on the presupposition that we see the same God in Exodus that we see this morning in our life. Is the God of the Bible the same yesterday, today, and forever? As God gave instruction for his people to walk in, do we expect God still gives instruction for his people to walk in? Here's his instruction, and it comes out in four verbs in verse 26. Listen, do, give ear, keep the statutes. Four verbs. Listen, give ear, do, keep. God interacts with his people, whom he has saved, and now very obviously led, and he says, here's what you should do. This does three things for all of God's people. It does three things for us. When God says to us, do, these are the sorts of things that it does for us. It shows us that freedom from slavery is for the ultimate purpose of bearing image. Okay? <laughs> um, you remember when I, when I told you several weeks ago, and, and forgive me, there's, there's words I, I can't figure out how to substitute, so I'm going to say them slowly and then explain what they mean. The fact that we were created in the garden, in the book of Genesis, as image bearers of God, is not primarily ontological, okay? It's not anatomical. It doesn't mean, well, God has ten fingers. God has legs and, and, and ears and eyes like this. It doesn't mean that we look like God looks like. It's vocational. It means we were created by him on the earth, to do God things. And what does God do? He makes his glory known to the world. So freedom from sin is freedom to do our created design as an image bearer. When you're incarcerated to sin, we are incapable of reflecting, of doing image bearing the way we were created to. So the first thing that giving us law does, setting us free from slavery and giving instruction, is it satisfies, it makes possible the ultimate purpose of us as image bearers. Secondly, it shows that the moral law that we are about to receive in Exodus 20 does not exhaust the meaning of what it is to do the will of God in this life. That was a pharisaical mistake, wasn't it? Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the things Israel comes to be taught is as long as you don't murder, you haven't broke the law. Because the law says, do not kill. Jesus confronts that and says, wait, you can't reduce every instruction to God to don't commit adultery and don't murder. I would say to you that there are instructions like don't hate. Don't lust. And so when we read here 
in Exodus 15 that God is already ministering instructions to his children. We're reminded that we don't reduce every instruction God gives us to the Decalogue, the giving of the law, the ten at Mount Sinai. Thirdly, it shows that what is to come at Sinai is not some last-minute addition for the people. As if God says, okay, I saved them, I set them free, but they're really struggling, so what should I do now? Oh, I'll give them a law. It's not some last-minute addition to this life in God. It is his purpose in our journey from salvation to salvation. These are not rules for saving these people. I want you to understand that would be legalism. To assume that God's rules are to be kept in order for us to be saved would truly be legalism in its fullest definition. That is not at all what God is doing here. God is giving to his children, whom he has already saved, instruction for the journey. God graciously made the water at Mara sweet. God gives them a law, and then God leads them to Elam. We might be tempted to say, well, which is it with God, grace or law? <laughs> Just... want to do something odd to drive that point deep into your memory. Which is it with God? Is it grace or is it law? You're asking the wrong question if that's the question that you want answered. It's just not the right question. Because you're asking, is it grace or is it law? And the question is yes, or the answer is yes. Because of God's grace, because we have been delivered from the bondage of sin, now we are set free to be his workmanship in Christ after salvation by grace through faith alone. Because that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And Ephesians 2, 10 is we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to good works. So God graciously turns bitter into sweet, then gives them instruction that we might call law or statutes, then leads them to a place where there are 12 springs and they enjoy his grace again. Grace, law, grace. Which is it with God? Yes. But it's imperative that you hear me say, this is not God's law to a people about how to be saved. This is God's law to his saved people about how to walk through wilderness. So there's not some false dichotomy between law and gospel. Jesus makes that clear. Again, allow me please to refer back to the Sermon on the Mount, which I said before in the opening. Jesus comes and says, I need you to understand, I'm not here to eradicate God's instruction to his people. I am, however, here to fulfill it. And your union in me is the way in which you too fulfill it. 
when Jesus goes and shares the gospel with the woman at the well, admittedly, my mind this week went to all the places where water is needed in the Bible. Jesus goes to the woman at the well. She's Samaritan, so there's already cultural conflict. And then Jesus asks her for water. And then he explains, you know, if you and I drink this water that's from the fathers of our people, we're going to get thirsty again soon. He says, but I could give you water so that you would be satisfied forever. Wow. I'm out here multiple times a day at this well, lugging this pail up from the bottom. I'll, I'll take the endless, please. And Jesus goes on and explains to her, she asks questions about worship, and then he gives her a law. And it's subtle. He's gentle. He says, in his understanding of her, he says, you know, as long as we're having this conversation, why don't you go get your husband and bring him here too? And we'll all talk. Uh, no, uh, no. Jesus is right. Uh, you've had these five. And the one that you're now living with like he's a husband is not even your husband. What did Jesus do in giving to her the water that would satisfy? He reminded her that there was instruction for those people who would be of the water that forever satisfies. Not in order to be it, but in coming to him as the giver of eternal satisfa uh, satisfaction, he also says, and you can't continue to live with that man who's not your husband. I would remind you because uh, this, if you, if you just kind of stretch your, your back and maybe your posture has slouched a little bit, kind of stretch your back and just take a fresh breath of air in your lungs because I, I want to be able to minister to you in the brief moment of time with an unmistakable clarity. And so not only do I need God's help to speak it, but I, I think you need aid to hear it. Um, it's important that we not assume that the gospel is the plan to be saved from the law of God. It's important that we not in any way assume that the law is the way to be saved. We cannot assume. There cannot be a legalist to law-keeping relationship with God, nor can there be a lawless relationship with God. And in saying those two things, you needed that deep breath to hear that and understand that those are two erroneous ditches that have existed throughout the history of the church. Do these things and you'll be received by God. No, 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 no. You are received by God. Don't do anything. So there's antinomian, that's no law, antinomian, that's like, like every 15 years the church is asking that question again. Hmm, are we antinomian? Yeah, 15 years ago we covered this. And then legalism, like this, hey, clean yourself up, and then, then uh, follow these instructions, check these boxes, and this is the way in. There are, however, friends, three uses of the law either a legalist or an antinomian. I can't tell which. 
because he's protesting the sermon, right? Love you, brother. Love you. Have a good day. He's sweet. He told me right before church, I've got to run to work. There are three uses of the law. Let me give them to you, and if you have a pen, I would encourage you to write them down. Or if you'd like to write them in the margin here where God gives this law, this statute to his people. The first use of the law is to mirror. The law tells me just how righteous God is. Look at the things God says to do. Like, don't take another man's wife. Don't poison your mind with obsessing about having what someone else has. Don't go around lying. Don't squander your breath and your life worshiping anything other than the true God. That's, that's a holy God who says things like that. The mirror, though, also reflects me and how unholy I am. So the law is this great mirror. Look at God. Oh, look at me. Secondly, the law restrains evil. It's the civil part of the law. Uh, Captain Ben Graham is in church, and one of the things that he's played piano today captain of the police department, one of the things that he is responsible for is punishing those who murder. That would be a responsibility that would fall on our police department, to, to arrest those who murder, to, to, uh, to restrain murderers. You're not, you're not a judge, you're a captain. So the nod is appropriate, or the shake. Um, civil law is shaped by the law of God. Why? Should we incarcerate a murderer? God says. Why should we restrain them? God says. Okay? So civil law is the second use of the law, which is to restrain evil. And then the third use of the law. To guide the regenerate. To guide the regenerate. So church, I want you to understand that the law is good for guiding us, his people. The law is not bad. The law is not abolished by Calvary. The law is good for guiding his regenerate people. Augustine said this, the law bids us to know how to ask the help we need of grace. The law bids us to know how to ask for the help we need of grace. So let me finish this morning. The question I asked at the beginning is, who is leading this people? Now the pillar makes it clear. While Moses serves as a sort of priest, God is leading the people. What is he leading them to? What sort of leader is God like? Their first crisis is they don't have what they need to drink. When they feel lost, that only multiplies the sense of fear and anxiety because they don't have enough to drink. However, God gives to us so that we don't feel lost this cup. As long as, as, long as we eat and drink, we proclaim 
The Lord has saved and will gather us again. We're not lost. All who cry out to him, the people grumble, Moses cries out. All who cry out to him are saved from the bitter cup of God's wrath because Christ in our place has already consumed all of it as we are led through this wilderness journey by God the Spirit. We are growing in conformity to God the Son and we are led in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. I, I, I reference Ephesians 2.10 again. 2.8.9.10 We are saved not by works of righteousness that we have done but we are saved by grace through faith. There's no room for boasting in it. We are saved undeservedly, undeservedly, church, undeservedly. Created then in Christ Jesus, his workmanship to doing good works. As a learner of Jesus Christ. I, I hope that this week's sermon and then Lord willing we'll meet again next week and we'll walk into the next chapter and we'll find in the next chapter they didn't have anything to eat. And we'll finish that second part sermon as often as you eat and drink by coming together to observe communion. And I would say to you as a disciple of Jesus Christ and you see this Exodus journey and you hear what God is like and how he leads and I would say to you, as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this truth of your provision in this Exodus shepherding. It causes our attention to turn to the way we are shepherded by our Savior, Jesus Christ as we experience this wilderness journey, we are sustained by your grace. The same grace that brought us from slavery is leading us home. And part of that grace is not just the bitter turned sweet, not just the 12 wells. Part of that grace is your fatherly instruction that guides us in these paths of righteousness. The fact that as the Spirit dwells in us and old things pass away and all things become new, we are being transformed day after day into the image and likeness of our beloved Savior. Thank you for those common graces like this prayer your word and communion we look forward to seeing again how you feed your people next week and then being able to touch and taste the providence of our drink and food in Jesus name we pray together amen Would you me this morning